This is Pastor Matt Harmless, and you are listening to Edgewood Sermon Audio. This is sermon number five from Paul Fuller out of the book of Joshua. Let's uh, go to the Lord and pray. And uh, this morning, uh, this week, I was talking with Matt, and he had thought he was going to be doing some work yesterday, prepping, and I'm like, I can help. You know, normally that's a Saturday sermon prep day. If that fell through, he's like, I think I need a break anyway. So I am really, really, it's my pleasure to be able to get up here and preach to you again from Joshua. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do believe that you are the maker of all things, the sustainer of all things, that you gave your son Jesus Christ as the penalty the one for us to live our lives for us to suffer the penalty that we deserve on a horrible cross when you turned your back on him for us because of the sins of the world put on him and then he rose again we believe in the resurrection and we believe that he has raised from the rose from the dead and is sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for us, pleading for us on our behalf. And furthermore, we believe that he is coming back to judge the living and the dead. And we are so thankful that we know that when he comes back, for those of us who have trusted in him as our only hope, at that judgment, there will be a day of rejoicing. We will see all the wrongs made right the ones that have, in this life, feel left undone. The ones, the things in this life that are so broken and messed up will be made right. And those who have not trusted in you, who have not repented, have turned to you, will receive the judgment that we all deserve. But we thank you that we, if we are your, we are your children, that we can on that day rejoice knowing that there will be no judgment for us because it's been poured out on Jesus Christ. Thank you for that privilege. Thank you for the time we can spend this morning to look at the book of Joshua again at a passage that may be strange for some of us if we're reading through and we would maybe gloss over. We praise you that your word has something for us on every page. So I ask that your spirit this morning would do that. Show us what you want us to hear, to see, to believe, to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm not going to preach from the Bible. I'm going to preach from this book. No. (laughs) How many of you know this book? Have you ever heard of this book? Donnie has. I'm hoping a couple of vets might have. Uh, This book is ancient by a Chinese guy, Sun Tzu. And for thousands of years, military generals have relied on its strategies. Uh, MacArthur, Douglas MacArthur, this was one of his books that he leaned on for strategies for war. It says all kinds of interesting things. One thing might be that's from his book is after crossing a river, you should get far away from it. It's kind of an important strategy. Um, And... It has things like rapidity is the essence of war. Take advantage of the enemy's unreadiness. So, for example, 
If you see your enemies crippled with fear, that's the right time to go in and attack. They're not ready. They are trembling in their boots. So with that in mind, listen to first verse 1 of Joshua chapter 5. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, the river, to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. So the enemies of God are terrified after Israel has crossed over this river. And remember, they're crossing the river to take the land that's been promised to them, which is going to involve battle, as we will see in the coming days. When I, next time I preach through Joshua, you would think this is an awesome opportunity. Your enemy is trembling. General Sun Tzu said, take advantage of them. Rapidity is the essence of war. But God's approach for Israel and for us completely runs against the grain of human wisdom. Human military strategy is thrown out the door with this chapter. The nation of Israel just crossed the Jordan River, and they camp out on the fields right across from it, right out in the open plain, which completely runs contrary to what you would think would be the next best steps. You would think, let's go. Let's take it now. But God says, and this is his normal way of doing things is, not now. Now is not the time that I want you to do that. He says, you're not ready. He says to Israel, you're not prepared for this battle. At least you're not prepared in the way that I want you to be prepared. And this is so true for us. God's wisdom runs contrary to our wisdom. And the key truth of this whole passage, chapter 5, that we're going to look at is that preparation for battle rests not in human wisdom, but in right worship of God. Preparation for battle rests not in human wisdom, but in right wisdom, right worship of God. You're like, what, what does that mean? How in the world is it that worshiping God prepares us for spiritual battle? How is that true? So Israel was actually not ready. Seems like they would be, but they were not. And God is going to show us in this passage three needs, three needs that Israel had to prepare for battle. And we're going to see that these are needs as well that we have because there are battles that we are in right now, and they're only going to get harder. Matt only halfway joked about having the job, Right? We know that this fall, this may change. The spiritual battles are here, and we need to be prepared. And this text is super incredible that it will prepare us if we heed what it has to say. So let's look at the first need, the need for a new heart. The need for a new heart. Now, as we read this, that's not going to be obvious to you that that's what the point of the text is in this section because it just doesn't say that. But bear with me. So... If we look at verses 2 through 5 of chapter 5, it says, At that time the Lord said to Joshua, this is going to be disturbing for some of you, <clears throat> make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. 
So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gilbeath Haaralah. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who had be, came out, out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. Okay? So, bear with me. We're going to unpack a little bit of this and help you see how in the world does this mean they need a new heart. We need to first understand what was the reason for this circumcision. This is like a mass circumcision. That was going to sound really bizarre to some of you, <laughs> right? Bear with me, okay? Why would this happen? And it's super helpful when the Bible says things like, this is the reason why. Look at this right there in the center of the text. This is the reason why. He actually tells us, whoops, that one of the reasons, gives us two reasons, but the first reason is that the second generation had not been circumcised. So remember, Israel's taken out of Egypt. They're brought out, Red Sea parted. They go in, and they're supposed to be on the way to the promised land. And that generation had been circumcised. The, the, first, the males, all males of Israel had to be circumcised. And that generation had been. But that generation doesn't believe when they get in there, the promises, they disobey God, and they're, they have to stay there for 40 years because of their unbelief. The children that they had in the wilderness is the second generation. And that second generation was not circumcised. The people of Israel, the first generation, did not circumcise their children on that second generation. And that, the reason for that is because, look at verse 5, though all the people who came out have been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way after they come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. Now, I, the reason why they had not done it is a little hard to understand. Like, why did they not circumcise their children? They know, they know they're supposed to. Um, I think verse 6 gives us the reason, and I think it's unbelief of that first generation. So we look at verse 6. It says, For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nations, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. I think the second reason for this big circumcision that God's telling them to do right now is because the parents had not believed. So the second generation was uncircumcised, and they needed to be. And why have they not been? Because their parents did not believe. Um, and it says that they did not believe says, because they did not believe, they perished. That word right there in the Hebrew literally means cut off. Now, if, if you ever get into studying Hebrew someday, you'll find that there's a little bit of jokesters. There's some literary puns going on right there. Um, and God's kind of showing some irony. Uh, you didn't do the cutting you were supposed to do. <laughs> you didn't believe my promises, and, and you're going to die now. 
Um, God takes these things very seriously. So the, the big question, though, I, I'm, I hope you would have in your head is, what the heck? <laughs> what is this about? Why circumcision? And I, I know, Matt, you've spent a lot of time teaching through the New Testament, so I don't know if you've spent a lot of time in the Old Testament. So imagine the group of people here have not really thought much about this. And you're thinking, what in the world does the surgery that we do on little baby boys have to do with anything spiritual at all? Okay? And I don't have time to go through the whole Bible and show you this. But I want to just give you a few things to help you get your head wrapped around what's the deal with circumcision. First of all, circumcision in the Old Testament is strictly a requirement for Old Testament Jewish people. It is not a requirement for New Testament believers, okay? We are not called in the New Testament to obey those Jewish laws, okay? Second, you may have picked up on this here, is that God loves symbols. God makes a big deal about symbols because he knows as humans they help us. They help us think about why we're here. Symbols help us remember who we are. Symbols help us remember where we're going. So think, for example, communion. We just did this last week. That's one symbol that God gave that he commanded. In fact, all the symbols that God gives are often commandments that they're not optional, but he wants us to use them because they point to a deeper spiritual reality. They are an outward thing that shows something, but they all point to some inward reality, a spiritual one. So communion last week, little pieces of bread, a little bit of uh, grape juice. Some people be like, what? What in the world's going on here? But we know there are symbols that remind us of a truth that Jesus Christ was, our, was sacrificed for our sins, right? God loves symbols. So this in itself, circumcision, is one of those symbols. It was a symbol that he gave to his people, Israel. He gave it to Abraham in Genesis 17. If you ever want to look at it, that's where we first learned about it in Genesis 17. And the whole point, though, he, God tells Abraham, you're going to need to circumcise your sons. And that is going to be a sign that you are part of the covenant people of God. So Jewish people were required to do that, the, the boys, to show that they are part of the covenant people of God. But it was never simply meant to just outwardly identify them with Israel. There is a need here for spiritual circumcision. Just write this reference down if you're taking notes. Jeremiah 4, 1 through 4. If you go read that, God gives us commentary about what in the world circumcision outwardly is supposed to be about. It's supposed to show a need for a heart circumcision. It's supposed to show a need that I need a new heart. My friend Jeff Rich says it this way. I think he really kind of helps you understand what circumcision is about in the Old Testament. He says, it was a symbol of the need for the heart to be cleansed from sin's deadly disease, removing the sin so that one could be devoted to love God and do his will. Circumcision always pushed people to faith and the need for significant inward spiritual surgery due to his depravity. Okay? You understand that? The whole outward point is actually twofold for, for God with his people. One, it's to identify I'm a Jewish person. 
Second, I'm part of the covenant people of God. Second, that I need a new heart. And it makes me, it's a constant reminder that I need a new heart. That first generation of Israel had outwardly been circumcised. But they were only playing a game. They really did not believe the promises of God. So then when the spies went to seek out the land and see what it's like and come back, and 10 of them say, it's terrible, we can't do this, it's awful, it's awful, bad guys there. They're not believing that the God who just parted the Red Seas, the God that just did the 10 plagues of Egypt, can handle this. They didn't believe that their God was big enough to handle it. And so they had been outwardly circumcised, but they had not in new hearts because they failed to believe. We see that. They did not believe. So in verses 7 through 9, we see this kind of expand, expanded on. It says, this is exact. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Okay, just stop there. This is a millions, it's probably about two million men, plus all their families, warriors, about to go do battle. Do you think this was a good idea from a human perspective? Mm, probably not. And guys, if you've ever had any surgery down there, you know that's not going to be a pleasant experience and you're not ready to go to war. God says, this is what I want done. You're not ready for war. You need this reminder. You need to be set apart that you are my people. And you need this reminder that you need a new heart. But verse 9, and the Lord said, this is after, he, after they did that circumcision. The Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal, which means rolled away in Hebrew to this day. That's, that's astounding. Why? Because it says he rolled away the shame. That's what reproach is. He rolled away the shame of being connected to Egypt, slavery, by making them have their children circumcised, and men at that point circumcised. It actually was a symbol that God has taken away their shame of being slaves in Egypt. So in the Old Testament, Old Testament, circumcision represents an identity with the covenant people of God, but also represents an inward change and therefore represents something we call regeneration. Shh, my phone's talking, my watch is talking to me. Also means it represents regeneration. Have you ever heard this term before? It's, it, it really means you've been given a new heart. How many remember the story of Nicodemus coming to Jesus in John chapter 3 at night, asking him these questions, right? And Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's what having a new heart means. That's what regeneration is. You've been born again, regened. You've been given a new heart. Now, 
What's interesting is that circumcision all over the Old Testament, and it's mentioned a little bit in the New Testament, and when you read about it in the New Testament, it actually talks about circumcision has now been replaced with this new sign of the covenant called baptism. So circumcision represented an outward reality in the Old Testament that you're part of the people of God and it pictured that you needed a new heart. When we have baptism in the New Testament, we had a baptism here a few months ago, a couple of them, we said it pictures one that you're now part of the people of God, but it also pictures an inward reality that your heart was dead and you were buried with Christ and raised to new life, which would only happen if you're given a new heart to believe. Do you see that? Baptism is a picture of getting a new heart, and that's the sign of the covenant and the new covenant. God doesn't change. In the Old Testament, it was a sign that they needed a new heart. So, ready for battle? God says, no, you guys have hearts. You need new hearts. You need to be prepared for that. And here's what's amazing. What it means to have a new heart. Why does it matter for you? How many of you have struggled fighting sin in your life? Come on. I, if you see no hands, I want to bow down to you because that's amazing. All of us, right? In fact, if we've been struggling with like addictions and things like that, we call them chains around here a lot, right? But here's the thing. When you get that new heart, the Bible teaches that it, those chains are broken. That you are given power over sin. Now, you can say no to sin now. That doesn't mean you always say no. You go sometimes and pick up the ball and chain and start carrying it around for some dumb reason. But here this, here's the thing. That chain's no longer fastened to you. Why? Because you've been given a new heart. That's what regeneration is about. It breaks the power of sin. So when we sing about chains, we need to be thinking about my chains are broken I now have power over sin because God has given me a new heart or praising God that he can do that breaking of chains for others. But here's the thing. It also means that Jesus took on shame, all of your shame, for the sins that you've committed. And just like in Joshua 5, he rolled away the shame of the sins of Egypt and being a slave. When you get a new heart, he's rolled away the shame of sin and put it on Christ. He bore all of that. Now, you, you sometimes like to try to wear the shame coat, which is just ridiculous if you have that new heart. Take that off and say, Christ has carried that all for me. All of it. You are as righteous as Christ is if you are in him. <clears throat> but we can only experience this joy that I'm talking about if you actually have the new heart which means the only way you're going to get a new heart, if you're like, this isn't connecting, I, I feel like I have no power over my sins. I have no power. It's like I have to do it. I would tell you, then maybe ask yourself, have I truly said Christ is my only hope and my sins are, I have to turn from my sins, I hate my sins, and it's only Christ that can forgive me. You need to come to Christ. When you do that, you will get a new heart. Okay, that's only need one. <clears throat> First need we see in the text is the need for a new heart. So you'd see all the circumcision. I hope you see that it's a spiritual reality that God's trying to show his people there, that they need a new heart. The second need you're going to see is the need to remember. 
the need to remember. And just like we need to see the reason for that circumcision, we need to see the reason for this particular Passover in the text. And I don't know if you're like me, but when I read the Bible, I quickly will glance over numbers. Like, I just like skim over them, especially dates. I want you to see something here, though. Um, in Joshua 4, 19, this is like right in the previous chapter we looked at. It says, the people came up out of the Jordan crossing on the 10th day of the first month. That's something I would not pay attention to. I would normally go, yep, okay, great. We need to remember dates for history or something. No, God doesn't do that. The 10th day of the first month means something, okay? It means something. What we're seeing here is the timing of a perfect God. He tells them to cross the Jordan, and the day they do it is the 10th day of the first month. Look at verse 10. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening of the plains of Jericho. So there's a three-day period of time between crossing over and starting this Passover. God always knows what he's doing in his timing, folks, in our lives. He always knows what he's doing. He works them out in ways we would never plan. And here we see that he does it again. He brings them up on the day that they were supposed to begin preparations. If you would look in Exodus, the instructions for Passover say that on the 10th day of the month, you're to go get the lamb and start making Passover preparations. He brings them over on the day that they need to. But if you look at Exodus 12, 44 through 48, you'd also notice in those instructions for Passover, uncircumcised people were not allowed to participate in Passover. So they're commanded to celebrate Passover, but they have to be circumcised. So now are you starting to see the big picture? They had to have that circumcision anyway because God says no uncircumcised people are to participate in my supper. Now let's make a New Testament connection there real quick. That's not in my notes. Unless you're part of the people of God in the New Testament and have that sign of the covenant, meaning you've been baptized, you should not participate in the Lord's Supper. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so that's just a side note. <laughs> um, this second generation of Israelites had to be prepared physically and spiritually to participate in this Passover. And they couldn't just celebrate it anytime they want or anytime however they want. They have to be in full obedience to God. What's interesting, though, what we see in this text in the next verses is, is that this is a beginning of a new day for Israel. Okay, and getting ready for this Passover, it's a big deal. How many do of you, somebody tell me, this is not a rhetorical question, how did people eat in the middle of the wilderness, Israel? Where did they get their food from? Manna. God provided food from heaven. That's how they survived. I've been to the Sinai wilderness and taken pictures of it. You've seen it too when you look at the pictures of Mars or the moon. I'm not joking. I'll show you someday. It's crazy. It, like how in the world could anybody survive here? Well, unless God brings you manna and break, brings water from springs of the rocks. Joshua 5, 11 through 12, the next two verses. And the day after that Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land. They're now in Canaan, crossed over the river, and there's stuff that they can eat that's growing there. Unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna 
ceased the day after they ate the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel. They don't need it anymore. They're getting the promise that they've been received. The land full of milk and honey and grains and fruits and all that kind of great stuff. So what's the deal, though, with the Passover? They celebrated Passover here. I said this second need, first need was for a new heart, second need was to remember. Passover is, if you were able to be here at our little Seder service, you'll remember that it was all about a picture, another symbol for the deliverance of us, of God's people, from slavery to sin. Yes, it was literal slavery, but God said this is a picture of what I'm going to do. So when they put blood over the door, and it had to be the blood of a perfect lamb, you need to know that that lamb was not perfect, and it wasn't enough of a sacrifice to really pay for your sins. I think somebody I was talking with the other day, we were talking about this, and they're like, wait, 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 wait. you mean the sacrifices didn't actually pay for sins? No. If you read the book of Hebrews, it actually says, no, those sacrifices didn't do anything in and of themselves. There were ways to see that only somebody else was going to be able to pay for it. And it had to be through a perfect, perfect substitute. And that substitute couldn't be just a man. Like that, the blood of a lamb isn't enough for a man. But if you think about, we serve an infinite God. We're made by an infinite God. If you sin against an infinite God, the consequence should therefore be infinite. Like, wait, 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 how does that math add up? Well, because if I sin against Todd and I do something wrong to him, the consequences should be to make it right, right? So like if I steal something from him, maybe I should pay it back double. That's trying to make it right. If I um, lie to him, right, we can make it right for me to confess and say it was wrong. There's really not a whole lot of consequences. But if I lie to the cop when I get pulled over, there's a little more consequences because he represents the law, right? The consequences of my sin take on a bigger reality based on what I'm sinning against. So I go before the judge and I lie to him. Consequences are even more than if I lie to the, to the cop, right? If I lie to the president of the United States, we call that treason, right? On the books, I could be shot. Level of the person you've sinned against represents the level of punishment you deserve. So, if I lie against someone who has infinite worth, my consequences should be infinite. Which is why the blood of one human being who doesn't have blood that's worth infinite infinity is not enough. You needed someone who had the same level of infinity worth as God, which is why Jesus had to be both man and both God. You get that? He had to be fully God. He had to be fully man. And when John the Baptist saw him and said, there's the Lamb of God who takes the way of the sins of the world, he was pulling us back to remember this Passover, that that lamb was just a pointer. All of those lambs, goats, birds, grain, all of that stuff that had been sacrificed over the years were ways of worshiping God and pointing forward to our need for a real Savior. 
Anyone who's saved in the Old Testament is saved in the same way you and I are saved today, by faith in God who's going to provide a substitute for you. Okay. <clears throat> we needed a new heart. The people of Israel needed to remember their deliverance and their deliverer, their redeemer. The third need, one more need that we need to see in the, this passage, is a need that General Sun Tzu would say is silly, and our culture would say is just maybe at best an add-on to your life. And that's the need for worship. The need for worship. So we need a new heart, we need to remember, and we need to worship. So let me show you what, what I'm seeing here. In this next section of Joshua 5, we see in verse 13 the appearance of a warrior. It says, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with a drawn sword in his hand. The drawn sword in his hand. That word behold there is like, oh my gosh. It's, it literally means like out of nowhere, all of a sudden, someone. So anytime you see behold, it's usually like, whoa, what the heck is happening here? <laughs> out of nowhere. This man just appears. Joshua sees a warrior with a sword. Now the only time... In the Old Testament, in the Bible, you're going to see a figure appearing with a sword in his hand out of nowhere. It's twice. Balaam and his donkey. Look in Numbers. I forgot to look up the chapter. Google it. <laughs> Balaam sees a vision of a warrior with a sword who commands him to do something or not do something. Okay. Second time is when David sees... Um, he took a sin, sinfully took a census and wasn't, wasn't supposed to do that. And he sees a vision of a warrior, just appears right before him with a sword drawn in his hand. And this man, in all three circumstances, is clearly not to be trifled with. And, and considering the situation of impending battle, Joshua knows battle is about to begin. I mean, we're reading along these stories. It's really convenient. We look at it about every once a month or every five weeks, and it doesn't seem to us. But think about this. If you guys have known anybody that's gone to war, going in, getting ready for deployment, there's a sense of impending kind of doom, kind of awful. And I can't relate to that. But you need to try to imagine that because that's what's going through Joshua's head. There's a battle's about to come up. And he sees this warrior show up, that should tell him something is going on here that's relevant to my battles I'm about to come to see. And the thing is, Joshua asked the wrong question. <laughs> so look at verse B, uh, part B of uh, second half of, of verse 13. He says, and Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? And Joshua says, or the man says, no. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. That's a yes or no question. Or uh, it's, not, it's not answered in the right way that you would think. He says, no. He doesn't answer either. He says, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. And the way he's saying this is not saying I'm not for Israel. He's saying you're asking. I guess I should take a hint. When, the, when this man says this, <clears throat> no. He's not saying, I'm not for Israel. He's saying, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking the wrong question. You should be asking, 
who am I? <laughs> right? Joshua should have said, who am I? And the, he identifies himself and says, no, I am the commander or prince of the army of the Lord, the hosts of the Lord. Now, that is not referring to the army of Israel. You will find that this is actually literally in the Hebrew, the hosts of the Lord. Like old hymns, you've also probably heard that as well, the hosts of the Lord. That is God's angelic army. And this is saying, I'm the commander of that angelic army. Um, and, and I think it's natural for Joshua to ask the question, right? I mean, are you for me or are you against me? Because I'm going to, I don't know, i got to either run <laughs> or do something here. He asked the natural but wrong question, but what we know after he says this is that Joshua has the right response, the right response. The last half of verse 14, he says, now the man holding the sword, now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped him and said to him, what does my Lord say to my servant? What Joshua did there is an outward act of worship with both his body and his mouth. He fell down and said, what does my Lord say to his servant? Worship gets at the worth of something. Now, I just talked about the different worth of different people. Like we talk about my friends and the cop Bill here in the room. He's an authority, <laughs> right? And the judge, and then the president, and then the king of the universe who made and sustains all things and directs every single atom has worth. And we give worth to the one who is worthy. That's what worship comes from. The word worship is talking about attributing worth to the one who is worthy. Worship, though, starts right here. It starts in your heart. It starts in your heart. And Joshua here recognizes that the captain of the armies of Yahweh is someone who you should worship. And the attitude of worship says, and this is where we need to take it home to us, what do you have to say to me, Lord? What words do I need to hear from you? So I think, hopefully, this is naturally begging the question of, who is this warrior? Who is this person? If you look at verse 15, the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And I think this verse helps us figure out pretty closely who this is. It cannot be an angel. Because every single time in the entire Bible you see an angel, they do not accept worship. Right? You'll see somebody try, and they say, no, no, you don't worship me. He doesn't say that to him, does he? In fact, what does he say? Take off your sandals, because where you're standing is holy. Where's the last time you heard that? Moses, burning bush. It's the only time you heard it. Who was speaking at the burning bush? God, Yahweh. He says, so we know it can't be an angel. 
it has to at least be God in some fashion right here standing before him because he says he takes worship and he says where you're standing is holy so we theologians have a fancy word for this it's called theophany um, comes from God and phanos in the Greek which means the showing up or the revealing of God and we see a few times in the Old Testament these theophanies where God reveals himself in some kind of shape some kind of fashion usually as a being, right? And here, it has to at least be that because he accepted worship and the place where he's standing is holy. But people like John Calvin, John Owen, Charles Spurgeon, pastors of the past that I love, believe that this is actually Jesus in a pre-incarnate state. And I would agree with that hesitantly. And here's my reason why I think it is him. <clears throat> because what is... <clears throat> why she's giving me that see you needed it <clears throat> what does jesus do in the book of revelation he's the captain of the armies coming back on a horse with a sword drawn and judgment that's jesus's role as the captain of the armies of the lord i'm pretty sure that's jesus i could be wrong it could be the father in some kind of way or the spirit showing up but considering Jesus' role in the New Testament, in both in 1 Thessalonians 4 and Revelation, the whole book, you'll see it over and over, Jesus is the captain of the armies of the Lord, and he will return in judgment. I think it was Jesus. That's pretty awesome, huh? Um, so I think it's that. So we need to see, though, what's this right response, the second right response. The first response that he had was he bowed down and said, what do you have for me, Lord? The second one, after he told him what to do, he did it. <laughs> He obeyed. He took off his shoes. <clears throat> that is Joshua responding to the holiness of God. And that's worship. When you see the value and supremacy of Christ, responding in humility and awe and obedience is worship. So an obedient heart, here's what I want you to hear. An obedient heart is a worshipful heart. We may think that when we're singing here, that that is worship. I would say that that is only part of worship. It should be flowing from hearts that are loving him, adoring him. But my response to him should also be obedience. And obedience shows me that I have a worshipful heart. And commentator Howard helped me see three things that I want to just bring this home for you. Of what does it mean? What are attitudes in my heart that show that I have a, a heart of worship? Okay, what would three different attitudes I think that would show that I have a heart of worship? And you need to look at this in your own life because I know that I don't have these often. <laughs> so I need to, <clears throat> I have a lot of room to grow. First of all, is, and we see this from the text. This was Joshua's attitude, right? Humble, expectant, and obedient. Joshua, he's the leader of millions, demonstrates humility in both his words and his actions. By saying, what do you have to say to me, Lord? I need to hear from you. That's an expectant heart that says, I need to hear from you. You need to tell me what to do, and I'm going to obey. That's humble, expectant, and obedient. And that's what the kind of attitude that I need to have every day. I need to go before the Lord. I need to say, God, what do you have for me? Confess to him, God, I failed yesterday. 
I need your grace. What do you have for me today? You are worthy of my praise because you are my king. The second attitude we see there that Joshua shows that I think is a, shows at a heart of worship is a recognition of your position. You remember that time in the New Testament when the centurion comes to Jesus? The centurion was over a lot of men, had a position of authority. And he says to Jesus, I'm a position of a, in a position of authority, but you are in a much bigger position of authority. That's the same kind of attitude that Joshua has here. He recognizes as a leader of a two-million-man army that this one is over greater, vaster armies. And you may have some measure of authority on this earth. Maybe you're a, a child. You don't feel like you have any right now. Maybe you do over the dog. But if you're in any other aspect of your life, you have some measure of authority. But daily, do you recognize that Christ is your Lord and your master? He's the one to whom we should submit and a lack of spending time with him daily. If you're not spending time with him regularly, will cause your heart to shrivel up or puff up in an attitude that says, I'm the one in charge here. When we see that, I see that when I think in my heart, things like I'm king and life should go my way. Third attitude that we should see that shows a heart, worshipful heart, is a readiness to serve. Joshua tells the, asks the, the ruler, the, the man with the sword, what does my Lord have to say to his servant? And the question is for you and me, do we have a readiness to serve others or am I complaining because I've not been served? Um, we need to have that conversation on July 7th as a, a body about how we can serve these children. It's a very difficult conversation, I think. We need to brainstorm about this together. But it does need to flow out of a heart that has this, recognizing that there are children in our, our congregation that don't come from homes where there's a lot of God-centeredness, right? We need to have a readiness to serve. That's just one practical area. But in the rest of your life, your job, your home, your brothers and sisters, etc., there should be ways that you should have in your heart I'm willing to serve. I need to serve because I've been served. Worship is our greatest need. That is our greatest need, is what we need most. So let me just kind of wrap this up. As we, we think about the mess that our world is in right now. I think there's many things that we can do to prepare for the times that lie ahead of us. I've talked with several of us, several of you, about things that we should be doing to prepare for how this world is changing. There's a lot of practical things. There, there's truly battle. Maybe it's even physical. <laughs> Who knows? I, there's definitely difficult times ahead. And there's things we should be doing to prepare. Smart things. Um, thinking things. Things that we need to do. But what hit me as I was thinking about this passage this morning is it's very counterintuitive to us, this passage. Um, the most important thing God says you can do to prepare for battle ahead of you is you, you need to do those other preparation things, but they're not what's most important. Right worship of him is what's most important, he says. Because think about it. I mean, I, we think, shouldn't we be honing our swords, <laughs> right? Shouldn't I be 
asking Donnie, like, okay, tell me when um, they've got more 9-millimeter ammo ready. <laughs> right? I, I should be thinking, you know, um, shouldn't I be really honing up on my ability to interact with worldviews that are different? I'd say yes to all those things, but that is not the most important need. Because, frankly, the enemy in front of us is far more formidable than we imagine. We are foolish to think that we really can do anything ultimately. The book of Joshua, as you're going to see, and I've already seen when he crossed the river, is not that Israel wins the victory. The next chapter is about the wall of Jericho, and they march around it seven times. There's an old spiritual song um, that says Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and won. That's not true. You're going to find the winner is Jesus Christ, is God. And we can prepare, and we need to prepare, because we are his, his soldiers. Yes, but ultimately, we don't win the battle. He wins the battle, and he's the one that's going to do the fighting. And that's exactly what he told his people before they crossed the Jordan at the beginning of Deuteronomy. Moses says to the people, the Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you. Just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you've now seen how the Lord your God carried you. You wonder how you're going to make it in the battles ahead of you that lie. The Lord your God's going to carry you. He's the one that's going to sustain you. When you've lost everything. You're going to know that he is everything that you need. But he's going to be the one fighting the battle. As a man carries his son. I didn't notice that this morning. That's a beautiful picture. That's what's going to happen. God's going to win this battle. So the question is, for you, do you realize this? I mean, be thinking, how can I prepare for the times ahead? Yes. But, right worship of God. Do I have that new heart? Do I have really, have I trusted in Christ and he's changed my heart? Am I taking time to remember what God is doing? What he's done for me? And, am I worshiping him daily with my life? That humble, obedient, expectant heart. A readiness to serve. Let's pray. God, we praise you. That you are the one who wins. Some days we can become so discouraged because we see it feels like we're losing. Help us not to be discouraged, but to know that you are the one with that sword in your hand who will exercise judgment. But help us not to lift ourselves up in pride, but to have that attitude of humble, obedient expectancy that Joshua had when he saw this vision of you. God, I just ask that you would help us to be ready to serve, but really, ultimately, we would be trusting in you. Help us not to be afraid. I pray that if there's anyone here today, God, that really has never trusted in you to save them, has not put all their hopes in you, has realized that their good works are not enough, that their sins can never be paid for on their own, that they would come to you today. And for those of us who have that new heart, would you help us to be ones who are daily worshiping you, living lives of worship?
In Jesus' name, amen.